So why is the emphasis on fatherhood so important? Well, listen, pretty, pretty sobering. 40% of American children go to bed every night without a father in the home. Study after study has proven that absentee fathers are the primary cause for teen violence and teen pregnancies. Fathers, then, are foundational to our society and to a stable home. So, good question, how can we, me, you, how can we as dads bring out the best in our children? And by the way, these principles are biblical, but they also work for a spouse, a friend, husband, wife, a supervisor, a manager. They work for everybody. You know, there's a crisis of absentee fatherhood in America. You can be divorced and still be a good dad, okay? Just because you two rejected each other, don't reject the kids. Don't make them pay the price of not having dad in a relationship. So there's a crisis in America, and according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 19.7 million children, think of that, that's more than one in four live without a dad in a home. So there's a father factor in nearly all of the social ills facing America today. Research shows irrefutable evidence that when a child is raised in a fatherless home, he or she is affected in the following ways. Again, pretty sobering. Four times greater risk of poverty, more likely to have behavioral problems, more likely to go to prison, more likely to commit crime, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen, more likely to face abuse and neglect, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, and two times more likely to drop out of school. So let me give you, in a, in a brief summary, six principles from Scripture on how to bring out the best in our kids and in other people. Number one, something we all have to learn to do, accept their uniqueness. Accept your children's uniqueness. You can't bring out the best in anybody until you accept them. You know, God made everybody different, and if two of us are alike, one of us can go home. None of us are alike. Even twins have differences. So you can't clone different people or your kids to be like you want them to be. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 6 says, the same God distributes different kinds of miracles that accomplish different results through each believer's gift and ministry as he energizes and activates them. Now, that's difficult, you would agree, because we live in a culture in America of comparison. We compare everything. Our clothes, our looks, our cars, our homes, our GPA, our income, our talent, and our looks, you know. It's a culture of comparison. Intelligence, they say, cannot be measured only by IQ test. For example, they're street smarts. They're athletic smarts. Some people have smart bodies and are very coordinated. Some of my friends are not. Some, some are are good at artistic intelligence. Some people are good at numbers. Some people can fix stuff without any training, and I hate you. <laughs> Some people are good with words, with music, or with people. But nobody is good at everything. Einstein flunked a lot of his courses and was considered a slow learner. He even flunked math. Years ago, a young kid who was very shy, unsociable, kind of rejected, dropped out of high school. But he did have a passion for computers, 
and today he's president and CEO of Microsoft. People used to call him a geek or a nerd. Now people say, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. <laughs> yeah. So how do you know when you've accepted somebody? Simple. You do not insist they be like you. And don't compare your children. Why can't you be like your sister? Because God made them different. They're not going to have the same taste as you. Anybody got more than two kids, you know what I'm saying is absolutely true. And you'll create a Jacob and Esau hatred between brothers or sisters if you start that nonsense. They're not supposed to be alike. Galatians 6 verse 4 says, let everyone be devoted to fulfill the work God has given them to do with excellence and their joy will be in doing what's right and being themselves and not in being affirmed by others. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, love does not traffic in shame and disrespect nor selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated. Think of that one. I have to remember that one on Highway 281. <laughs> or quick to take offense. So, Dad, don't make carbon copies of your children. It won't work. They do not have to be like you. When God made your children, He didn't make them to be carbon copies of you. And often, dads want their kids to excel in the area they excelled in or act like they do or talk like they do. I hate it when I hear preachers train up their son to preach like they do instead of being who they are, a different style. Y'all awake? Oh, okay. I, I, you hadn't gone to sleep on me, have you? I, I, doesn't it make sense? I, well, who wants to clone? No, God loves for you to share his values, but everybody's unique and everybody's different. When doctors try to make their kids doctors and lawyers try to make their kids lawyers and pastors try to make their kids pastors, you're not accepting their differences. People would say to me sometime early when we had little children or whatever, are your kids going to be in the ministry? I said, it's not my job to call them. It's my job to train them. It's my job to put value in them, character in them. God has to call them. I don't care what they're called to do as long as as long as it's something that fits their gift, style, and passion. And if God wants them to be in the banking world or the fashion world, that's fine with me. I don't have any identity crisis where they have to follow me. I think in this kind of business, if you're not called, you won't last anyway. So don't even think about it. So I would never try to do that to my children. I never made my wife be, oh, you're a pastor's wife. Like, what is that? Is that some strange creature? Are they supposed to lead the music? Are they supposed? No. No, it's amazing what denominations have put on women who happen to be married. This happens to be my call, not my wife's call. I hear people all the time say, well, if you marry a prophet, that doesn't make you a prophetess. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard of. It just makes you the prophet's wife. If you don't have that gift, that's not you don't inherit it because you married somebody. You get their honor, respect, and esteem, but you don't get their call. You don't get their office. There's a... There's just a lot of jobs. Now, can you see why I never wanted this job? Can, can you understand? So I told my wife, you can be who you want to be. If you want to teach, if you, that's your gift, if you want to share, whatever you wish to do, you will do that. But you will not have to perform by some expected behavioral standard put on you by some religious group. You just be who God made you to be first. And that's it. And we've never changed that. I never will. Well... Proverbs 22, verse 6, the book of wisdom. Dedicate your children to God. 
point them in the way they should go, and the values that they've learned from you will be with them for life. Now, that verse in the King James gets misquoted a lot. It's not a promise. It, in its original language, it does not mean that if you raise kids in a godly way, that uh, when they rebel and they get real old, then they'll return to the Lord. That's not, that might happen, but that's not what that verse is saying. It means to train the kid in the area of their giftedness, their abilities, their talent, in what they're good at. So if your child's good in athletics, steer them towards sports. If they're gifted musically, steer them towards music. If they're good at making money, steer them towards building us a gym. But don't try to make them you. There's a good book I read oh, maybe 10 years ago called Soar With Your Strength. It wasn't a Christian book, but it's loaded with Christian principles. And the whole idea was find out what your kids are good at, what their propensity is, and steer them in that way. You know, education is basically socialism. Every kid gets thrown into the same classes and courses, but they're not good at it. So going to a four-year college may not be best for your child, but going to a, a training school, a trade school, or a junior college might be best, and they may excel everybody who graduates from college because you're pushing them in the area of their strength, not their weakness. If you pushed me towards calculus, I'm dead. I had to get with the smartest kid in the class and beg and pray my way through that course to graduate from the university. I hated calculus. I don't know why they would put calculus on me. I have no future in calculus. I had no interest in it. I didn't understand it. I couldn't do one problem today if you put a gun to my head and threatened my life. It's the stupidest thing I ever heard of. So don't compare. Why can't you make grades in math like your sister? I'm made for something else. That's simple. So celebrate that uniqueness in your children. So to bring out your best in kids, realize all of them are different, and you've got to learn to accept their differences and not compare. Number two, trust them with measured responsibility. Nothing brings out the best in kids or anybody else faster than having somebody believe in them and trust them with responsibility. Listen to Jesus. He's quoting now in Luke chapter 16. The one who manages the little he has been given with faithfulness and integrity will be promoted and trusted with greater responsibility. But those who cheat with the little they have been given will not be considered trustworthy to receive more. If you have not handled the riches of this world with integrity, why should you be trusted with the eternal treasures of the spiritual world? And if you haven't proven yourself faithful with what belongs to somebody else, why should you be given wealth of your own? Wow. See, one of the most important skills we can learn to teach our children as they're growing up is to teach them to be responsible. We live in a society filled with irresponsible adults. We got no-fault insurance, no-fault divorce. A lady ran into the back of my car last year on 281. Let me tell you something. It was somebody's fault. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. And if you buy that, so whether it's in politics, whether it's in uh, celebrities or the sports world or the media, nobody's responsible. Nobody's responsible. 
Let me tell you something. If one of these police officers gives me a ticket for going too fast, it is my fault. It's not, it's not because I'm bipolar. It's not because I had a fuss with my wife. It's not because my father didn't understand me. Stop it. You are who you are and where you are because of the choices you made. Man up. Take responsibility. Even when it hurts, it's my fault. And I think what made David stand out to God, you know, Saul was rejected as king of Israel, but he didn't commit adultery and he didn't commit murder. He, he was a lousy a king. David committed murder and adultery. Well, why was he God's favorite? He's the only one of all the flawed people who said, I'm the man. He didn't blame Bathsheba and say, well, look, she's been hitting on me all month. She's been coming out there naked, getting a bath. She knows I carry a heavy responsibility. I've got to command all these troops. You know, this job has a lot of stress in it. My wife's busy with the kids. She doesn't understand me. I, he, that's what you'd hear today. No. He said, I saw a hot mama, and I went for it, and I'm the man. And you know what? He suffered for that, but God said, he's a man after my own heart. He is totally responsible. He didn't blame Bathsheba. He didn't blame anybody else. He took responsibility. The first step to maturity is responsibility. It's not age. It's the ability to be responsible. And I, the, the reason we got irresponsible adults is because they never learned to be responsible as kids. So how do you learn to be responsible? Well, only one way that I'm aware of, somebody has to trust you with some responsibility, even if they happen to think you don't deserve it. In the long run, statistics prove you're, you're better off trusting your kids a little too much than too little, because overprotection is a form of rejection. Overprotection, being a helicopter pilot, uh, being a helicopter uh, parent, you know, hovering over your kids, says you're not competent, I can't trust you, you can't be relied on, so I'm going to keep you real close. Now, yeah, they're going to make mistakes when you do trust them, but so did you. You're not perfect, I'm not perfect, and your Heavenly Father still accepts you, so they're going to make mistakes. Obviously, you don't start little kids off with heavy responsibility, it's measured, but as they grow, then delegate more responsibility to them. People respond to responsibility. They thrive, they grow, they develop, they blossom. It's a fact. If you treat people like babies, you're going to have to diaper them the rest of your life. If you're a dad or a boss or a manager, don't make all the mistakes yourself. Let your people make some. Delegate, release, empower people because when you trust people with responsibility, they tend to blossom. Dr. Howard Hendricks, who has written several books on the family, said that after interviewing thousands of parents, most of the parents said, if I had to do it over again, I'd do less for my kids and have them do more for themselves. I remember a long time ago talking to uh, a, 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 a well-renowned Charles Simpson from Mobile, Alabama, and Charles said, Rick, it's interesting. We want our kids to turn out like us, but we don't want them to have to go through what we went through that made us what we are. And I thought, it's a fact. You know, if you suffered in poverty, you don't want your kids to do without. If you were, uh, if you were always abused or mistreated, then you don't, even want to, you don't want to hurt your child at all. You want to make sure they don't have a pain, they don't have a problem, they don't have a need. 
And while that really sounds admirable in the long haul, it really ruins the kid. It really does. If I'm guilty, I'm guilty of doing too much for my children. It's a fact. It's a fact. I take full responsibility for that because I came from a divorced home, handed off to different relatives. And, you know, if I was given anything, it was always a manipulation. If you do this, then I'll give you this. And I, and I just thought, no, not going to live that way in my life. But the key would be don't do too much. You're not hurting the child. If you do too much, then they start feeling entitled. And now you really got a problem. And then they grow up to be adults and they think everybody owes them something. So today we have a society filled with codependent people. Let children and people occasionally, let them feel the brunt of their own actions to reap what they've sown. Don't just immediately bail them out. See, if you create a safety net so your kids can never fail, they don't learn responsibility. Jesus trusted the disciples. By the way, our military is trusting 22-year-olds with billion-dollar machines, aircraft and tanks and ships, with these young guys being given that responsibility, and they're rising to the challenge. John 20, verse 21. My dad was 22 flying B-24s into Nazi Germany on D-Day. I mean, think of that. 19, 20, 22 years old. He was shot down twice. He said, I never could understand why I didn't die. I said, because I had to be born. <laughs> I don't know if it's worth it, Dad, but anyway, that's probably why. John 20, verse 21. Jesus repeated this greeting. Peace to you, he told them. Just as the Father has sent me, I'm now sending you. You know, Jesus showed 12 men, fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary, different as night and day. And then he said to this motley crew, by the way, guys, I'm going back to heaven. Now it's your job to bring salvation to the whole world. Wow. And he trusted the salvation of the world to these tax collectors, extortioners, these old fishermen from deadliest catch. What a doubting Thomas. He put the whole world and all the good news in the hand of these 12. So, Dad, don't create insecure kids by overprotecting them. Trust them with measured responsibility. So if you want to bring out the best in your kids and people, first, accept their differences. Second, trust them with responsibility. Third, always expect the best. Always expect the best. You may be in deep yogurt, but I hope you're a person of optimism and hope if you're a Christian. It's never too bad or too late if God's involved. I've always been expectant for some kind of a turnaround. You know, I don't know when, I don't know how, but there is expectancy in me. And expectancy is the breeding ground of a miracle. See, your expectations have a profound influence on others because people tend to perform at the level they're expected to perform. A Harvard psychologist named Dr. Robert Rosenthal published a study that became worldwide famous. And it was a study of the impact of teachers' expectations on students in a classroom. So a group of kindergartners through the fifth grade were given a learning test. The next fall, the new teachers were given the names of four to six high achievers out of that group. However, it was a lie. It wasn't true. The children were simply selected at random without the teachers knowing it. 
At the end of the year, the students were retested, and the amazing results were the students that the teachers thought had the highest potential had outscored everybody else and gained as many as 15 to 27 IQ points in one year. The teachers described these children they thought were high achievers as happier, more curious, more affectionate than average, and having a better chance of achieving later in life. But the only change during that year was the attitude of the teachers because they had been led to expect more of these students and they in turn came to expect more of themselves. Carl Menninger concluded that attitudes are more important than facts. If you want to build confident kids, confidence is more caught than it is taught. It's how you believe in people, how you treat people. So whatever you want people to be, treat them like you want them to become. Every great leader knows the power of positive expectation. I hope you're not negative, but positive. Psalms 139. Number four, affirm your child's value. Affirm your child's value. Psalms 139, verse 13 and 14 says, You formed my innermost being, shaping my delicate inside and my intricate outside, and wove them all together in my mother's womb. I thank you, God, for making me so mysteriously complex. Everything you do is marvelously breathtaking. It simply amazes me to think about it, how thoroughly you know me, Lord. That psalm makes it clear that no baby is ever born by accident. The parents might not have planned it. They might not even have wanted it. But every baby, every human being is formed for a purpose that God knew. God knew how you would look. God knew what you'd be good at, and he shaped you, hardwired, and formed you, and says you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You're not a mistake. You're not unwanted. God wanted you. You didn't come from your parents. You came through them so God could grab some DNA to make you. So you get your self-esteem and self-worth from the father who handcrafted you. My parents have... You know, if you came from a good home, it's even better. But whether you did or not, or whether they wanted you or not, or they wanted a boy and you were a girl, doesn't matter. You are exactly what God wanted. And you need to get your self-esteem from that. The Bible says even the hair on your head is numbered. And Philip, that's getting easy to do. <laughs> Sorry, I just pick on Philip, you know. He's numbered my days. He's planned your life before you came out of the birth canal. That's why we hold the sanctity of human life in the womb. You know, when you, when you kill that, it short circuits God's plan. If you don't want the baby, please give it for adoption to so many parents who can't have a child, who want a child, who want to love. Nobody's going to condemn you. Nobody's going to think ill of you. We want to help you. Let that baby have a chance, right? So we, we want to care for you. And there are agencies now galore. You can even go to a fire station. Nobody will prosecute you. There's no criminal offense to that. Don't do harm to the child. Let that child have a good life and a normal life. And nobody's going to fault you or blame you. This is not a blame game. We just want the best for you and for your baby. You're custom made. Did you know that? There's only one like you in the world. God prescribed you from birth. That means you've got tremendous value. And people need to hear that today. People need to know, hey, you matter to God. You count. Your life has meaning and significance. 
A study of 10,000 women revealed the number one cause of depression among women, low self-esteem. And we've got an epidemic of low self-esteem in our society because people don't feel worthy and don't feel valuable. And there's lots of reasons for that. You know, many, but one of them is the whole fact of evolution taught in a school. If I'm just an accident of nature and there's no created intelligence behind it and I just happen to be a more complicated form of slime, then you don't matter. So how do you affirm the value of your children and other people? Three ways. Ready? Number one, attention. Attention. You affirm value by giving attention. People need attention. When you look a child or you look your spouse in the eye, you're paying them a gift by saying, you matter to me. I'm interested in what you have to say. And guys, when your wife begins to talk, put down the phone, mute the TV, look her straight in the eye. You just told her, you matter to me, you have my attention. I'm telling you, that's some good points. I don't want to do it either. I mean, I despise these guys to get on stage and lie. Nobody wants to. It's always going to be at a moment you're interested in a program. It's always at a moment you're doing something. I'm just trying to put some emotion into it. It's never at, well, there's nothing on. No, no, it's going to be fourth quarter, a minute to go. <laughs> and a child or your wife. And I have learned. I did not do that in the early days of childhood, but boy, I learned to do it, and I do it now with, even with my grandchildren. When they want Poppy's attention, I'm on. Whatever. Yeah, I didn't say it was fun or it's, it's easy. I just learned it's an investment in them. It's an investment in them. Second, affection. Affection. You know, Romans 12, verse 20 says, Be devoted, tenderly loving your fellow believers as members of one family. Try to outdo yourself in respect and honor of one another. If you love somebody, you'll show it. Dads, don't just say, I love you. Show it with hugs and kisses. Grab that little boy. I was had my grandchildren in the speaker's lounge in there, hugging on little Ethan and hugging on little Mia and hugging them and kissing them. Don't stop doing that. I, I was watching Bob Wells out here. One of his big muscular sons came in, uh, get, grabbed him around the neck, and gave him a kiss on the cheek. That's, that's good. That's healthy and good. I love to see big old strapping son grab daddy and give him a kiss. But that's not going to happen unless you've been hugging and kissing him from the start. Okay, and I'm aware that now if you, if you give somebody a hug, now it's sexual harassment. And we're a hugging church, you know, and the Bible is a hugging Bible. And greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't think that's sexual harassment. Uh, if you don't like somebody doing that, you tell them, don't do that. And we'll let you sit up there on the left, way, way up there. So people like a good old man hug. There's nothing, no sexual harassment about that or, or even a kiss. I remember when Oral Roberts came over to, to see me, and, and I, uh, I, out of respect for his age, I think he was 85 or something, I gave him an embrace and kissed him on the cheek, and that was a biblical custom. You know, we shake hands, they just kiss on the cheek in the Middle East, and it was an expression of honor and favor. I've done that many, many times, so learn to do that. Start them off with young kids doing that. Be affectionate. Then third, appreciation. When you appreciate people, thank them. It raises their value. Every time you appreciate your family, your kids, you're raising their value. Great people make people feel great. 
And I want to use this point here because uh, to say this, uh, uh, what am I going to say? Kara <laughs> Hernandez and her team of volunteers had ties and tiaras for daddies and their little daughters. And they had a party and a dance out here in the South Lobby, and it was spectacular. The decorations were phenomenal. The whole idea was creating a magic moment for all those little girls and their daddies. It was beautiful. Well done, Kara, and to your team. I told everybody, was magnificent, A-level. I think it's the first one we ever had, but it, boy, they raised the bar really high now. That was something else. And when people do something, or a good job, or the praise team, or somebody, the engineers, or different people, somebody in the nursery with your child, acknowledge appreciation. And when the kids do something, like maybe pick up the toys in their room, or, or brush their teeth, or said thank you after eating the dinner without being, what do you say? Show appreciation. Start that early in age. Hebrews 3, verse 13. This is the time to encourage each other to never be stubborn or hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Number five. Here's almost to the end. Correct without condemning. Correct without condemning. All of us need correction. I do. You do. We all come short. We all fail. If you love somebody, you'll correct them. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 6, Hebrews 12, verse 6. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, I think he loves me a lot, he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So just as God disciplines us, we discipline our children. That's not abusing your child. That's not hurting your child. But it is uncomfortable to your child. And I realize there are many multitudes of discipline. You have to find the one that works best for your child and in your family. It proves you really love them. Really? Proverbs 13, verse 24. If you withhold correction and punishment from your child, you demonstrate a lack of true love. So prove your love and be prompt to punish. They need discipline to grow. And if I don't, it shows I'm setting them up for failure. Proverbs 19. Listen to this one. Verse 18. Don't be afraid to discipline your children while they're still young enough to learn. Don't indulge your children to be swayed by their protests. Lots of tears. No, no, no. And they got a big, thick diaper. You can give them a little swat on the, on the bottom. They're not going to be abused in any way. Man, when I went to school, and some of the guys my age, we had these, we had, they had paddles that looked like half-inch wood and holes in them, and they'd make you bend over and raise you up off the floor. They called them giving us licks in the deep south. Where was ACLU then? Where, where, were, where were the lawyers then? I could be rich, retired for abuse. But it didn't warp my personality. I'll tell you something. I never got a whipping I didn't deserve. I got away with many I should have got a whipping on. And I'm just being honest. So you discipline those. Don't let them escape without some discipline, right? God says, you don't, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He says, if you're without chastisement, you're an illegitimate child. You don't belong to me. So I don't discipline children that are not mine. I don't have that authority, but I can well discipline my own, and you must as well. You know, I see people come to church, and they'd let the kids do anything. And I thought, where did you grow up? You know, you, you need to have a parent as the parent because these kids know nothing about discipline. 
You know, when we went over to somebody's house, and my dad was military, if we went over to somebody's house and my sister and I were doing something we shouldn't be doing, I would get first a look, something like Darth Vader, just the look of the eyes. I did not need to hear one word. Those eyes said, keep that up and you are dead. You, I mean, I had all kinds of signals coming, but boy, you could communicate with a facial expression. Anybody but me, was that true for any of you? There you go. There you go. Most of young teenage boys with guns walking around shooting people on the street have no father figure in their life. They're trying to develop their own manhood without a good model. And the Bible says we're to discipline our children. We need to even correct each other occasionally as adults. So how do you do that without condemning? Two ways. Number one, never correct when you're really angry. Don't do it when you're mad. You'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. Even as an adult, don't react when you're mad. You're not thinking straight. Cool down. If you have to wait 24 hours, cool down. And it'll, Don't write that email. Don't send that text. Don't speak to that child yet when you're filled with anger. See, whether you're a father, mother, manager, or teacher, never correct in anger. When you correct in anger, you're just getting even. You're not doing what discipline is supposed to do. When you discipline in anger, it produces anger in return plus resentment. And you'll reap what you sow later. So you're sowing seeds of rebellion when you discipline in anger. Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not irritate and provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate them to resentment, but rear them up tenderly in the training and discipline and counsel and admonition of the Lord. See, when you discipline in anger, you get two results, anger and resentment. So rather bring them up with loving discipline that the Lord himself approves with suggestions and godly advice. Lower your voice has just as much impact as all that anger and, and words. No, number two, watch your words. Be real careful what you say. Ephesians 4, 29, never let ugly or hateful words come out of your mouth. But instead, let your words become beautiful gifts that encourage others. Do this by speaking words of grace to help them. So harmful words always become hurtful memories. We always remember the negative things said to us by some authority figure in our life, even more than compliments. Yeah, if you get four notes today saying you did a great job and you only get one that said you're a jerk, which one will you remember all day? Always the hurtful one. So most of you can remember hurtful things said to you as a child. Why can't you be like? Or you're always like. Now you may have forgiven and gotten beyond that, but you remember that. And although you might get the behavior you want from the child or person, you're sowing seeds of rebellion that will ultimately destroy that relationship. Here's the last principle of raising good kids. Never, never give up on them. Never, never give up on them. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, love is a safe place of shelter. It never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. Never, never give up. You know, not until your last breath. We all fail in life. And one of the most important things you can do is teach people how to forgive themselves. If you want to be a good parent, when your children fail, don't rub it in, rub it out. Give them another chance. Give them the gospel of grace. Your heavenly father gives you chance after chance. 
So give your children many chances. And as a father today, you may be feeling a little frustrated, maybe a little guilty. Maybe you're tempted to feel like a failure or feel worried. You might be asking, what does it take to be a great dad or a parent? Here's as simple as I know. Try to become as much like the Lord as you can. It's taken me years to make changes of how I relate to people or don't judge people or respond to people because I did not have the training or models to do it like Jesus did it. So I've had to learn to do it. You know, those six things we just looked at come right out of God's Word, and it's how God treats you. For example, He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your Heavenly Father give to those who ask Him? So He says He's comparing Himself above natural fatherhood. Natural fatherhood responds certain ways. He said, as a Heavenly Father, I'm even better than that. Slow to anger. His mercy endures forever compassionate over and over and over and I have to learn to get that way because man I was more reactive in my early adulthood than I am now not reacting once in a while on 281 but mostly I don't react okay so God wants you to do them with your children as he does them with you and the more like God you become the more these things get built into your life Psalms 103, verse 13, the same way a loving father feels towards his kids, ah, that's but a sample of God's tender feelings towards us, his beloved children, who live in awe of him. So who's our model for parenting? It ain't Dr. Spock. It's not Oprah. It's not anybody else. It's God, and he's told us how we're to parent. And when you look at the life of Jesus, he always brought out the best in people. He took people who were at the lowest level in life, lifted them up, and brought out the best in them. And he wants to do that in your life. And the more you give yourself to him, the more of yourself you give to him, the more he can bring out the best in you. And then he wants you to bring out the best in other people. But it's only possible with his power through you. But it is possible. And one thing you can do. You make sure that child knows you can't do enough to make me not love you because that's what the Father says about you. You can't do enough to make me not love you, to give up my only son for you. That's how valuable you are to me. And boy, it has power. Even if the tough teen doesn't show it, it has power deep inside the heart. I want my kids to know I love you. I'm proud to be your daddy. I'm not a perfect daddy, but you ain't a perfect kid. And I love you unconditionally, and I'll never forsake you. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? As we close, I want to challenge all the men here who are dads just to make a quick public commitment to these six principles. If you'd say today, Rick, I want to become a godly father. I want to learn to accept the differences in my wife, my children, and those around me. I want to trust them with responsibility. I want to expect the best from those I love. I want to affirm their value rather than devalue them. I want to learn how to correct without condemning. I want to make a commitment to never, ever give up on them. If you'd say that as a dad for just a brief moment, would you just stand with me as a public commitment? Just stand with your heads bowed, and I'm going to pray. Just a, a simple, simple prayer. 
just around this auditorium. Heavenly Father, thank you for these men of Summit Christian Center, men who are not perfect, but whose hearts are headed in the right direction, who want to be good fathers, good believers, good models of your love. Help us where we fail, when we stumble, and where we make mistakes. Lord, help us turn to you to live with integrity and humility, the lives you want us to live. Bless these men, Lord, who have made this public commitment to become the kind of a parent, a dad you want them to be. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen and amen. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.